Welcome to the European Journal of Plastic Surgery Journal Club. Together with Plaster and Icoplast, we bring you the latest open access articles with unique insights from the authors and discussion with plastic surgery experts around the world. Thank you for listening and we hope you enjoy this month's episode. Hello everyone and thank you for joining us for this month's episode of the European Journal of Plastic Surgery Journal Club. I'm your host, Demetrius Rhesus, and I'm a plastic surgery registrar in London, UK, and head of operations for our trainees association called Plasta. Today we'll be discussing and appraising a new open access article in this month's issue of EJPS, entitled The Septocutaneous Gluteal Artery Perforator Makeover Flap, Eliminating the Need for Position Change in Gluteal Flap Breast Reconstruction. It is written by senior authors Dr. Stefania Turinda and Professor René van der Hulst, and first author, Dr. Ine Bildkirk. We are honored to be joined by all of them today to discuss their article. They work together in the Department of Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery in Maastricht University Medical Center in the Netherlands, and Dr. Turinda is the deputy trainer in the Department of Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery. She first reported on the septocutaneous gluteal artery perforator flap in 2008, and has pioneered its use and development of the technique since then, with multiple further studies and publications on its effectiveness for breast reconstruction from both the surgeon's point of view and the patient's point of view. She has taught and lectured extensively on these topics and we're very much looking forward to learning from her today. So thank you very much, Dr. Turinda. Thank you for the kind invitation. And thank you also to Professor René van der Hulst. He is the head of plastic surgery department and the senior trainer at Maastricht University Medical Center. He specializes in reconstructive breast and head and neck microsurgery. He has published more than 100 articles in scientific journals and impressively has been the chairman of the Dutch Association of the Plastic Surgery since 2012. Thank you for joining us today, Professor, and we look forward to hearing your thoughts on the article as well. Thanks also for inviting us. And also Dr. Annie Bitchkirk. She's a clinical researcher and PhD candidate in the Department of Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery at the Maastricht University Medical Center, where she studies various aspects of autologous breast reconstruction, including technical aspects and the impacts on patient quality of life. Thank you very much for putting the article together and for joining us as well, Annie. Thank you. Thank you. And from EJPS, we're honored to be joined by the Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Horatio Mayer. He is a plastic and reconstructive surgeon and Deputy Head of the Plastic Surgery Service at the University Hospital Italiano de Buenos Aires in Argentina. He is also the Chairman of the Education Committee of Icoplast, and he is the driving force that has made this journal club possible. Thank you again, Horatio. Thank you, Dimitris, for organizing once again this wonderful journal club. Also from Icoplast, we are joined by Dr. Hine Rakulst. He is a founding board member of Icoplast and Icobra, and a specialist plastic and reconstructive microsurgeon working in the Medish Spectrum Hospital in Twente in the Netherlands. Thank you, Hine. Thanks for having me. And also from Icoplast, we are joined by Mr. Graham Perks. He's a consultant plastic and reconstructive surgeon in Nottingham in the UK, with a specialist interest in microsurgical reconstruction. He is the past president of BATPRES and is an internationally acclaimed trainer and mentor of plastic surgery trainees around the world. And we look forward to hearing your thoughts today, Graham. Thank you. Good evening. Lovely. And last but not least, we are joined by Dr. Luis Vieira, who will be leading the critical appraisal of the article today. He is a microsurgery fellow at the Uppsala Plastic Surgery Department in Lisbon, Portugal, and he has prepared a presentation summarizing the article which we'll begin with. So without further ado, I'll hand over to you, Luis, um, to hear your thoughts on the article. Thank you. I'll be shortly presenting this, this the paper from the team from, um, from Maastricht. 
ZIEP is the gold standard for autologous breast reconstruction. However, some patients are not eligible for this flap, either because they don't have sufficient abdominal tissue or because they don't want their abdomen to be touched. So there's a, there has been a, a search for new donor sites for autologous breast reconstruction. Gluteal flaps have been used since 1975, and the last innovation that was uh, that happened in this, this field was by Twinder and her team uh, when they presented the septocutaneous uh, perforators coming from the superficial uh, branch of the superior gluteal artery. A major setback of the gluteal flaps has been the difficult operative workflow because the flaps are normally harvested in prone position and there's a need to change for supine position for the insetting and the anastomosis. Uh, however, in this paper, the authors introduce a new gluteal free flap, the septocutaneous gluteal artery perforator makeable flap that is more ventrally located and so it, it can be harvested in, in supine position. In this prospective study, the authors gathered the data from all the autologous breast reconstruction at their department with this flap and the patients that also had the preoperative uh, magnetic resonance and geography. And these are the results. They uh, are a total of 13 flaps were performed in nine patients with a mean age of 47 years old and a mean BMI of 26.54. The indications for this flap, in four of the patients, the abdomen was not available at all, but in other five patients, it was available, but because of patient's preference, it was not used. The mean hospital stay was uh, six days, uh, ranging from four to nine days. The mean weight uh, of the flap that was harvested was 638 grams. And uh, talking about the complications, the, the post-operative complications, uh, related to the flap, there were no flap necrosis, there was one hematoma in the breast prior re-exploration, and there was one donor site seroma that persisted for 85 days. Another part of the study was the study of the subcutaneous pro projection per donor site of the flaps that can be harvested with the patient in supine position. And for this study, the, the authors used the preoperative magnetic resonances that they had. The main result is that this flap, the septocutaneous gluteal artery perforated makeup flap, has the highest projection of all the flaps. And for example, when compared to the DIEP in an abdomen that was never touched, it's more than double. So the DIEP is 25 millimeters, and for the septocutaneous gluteal artery makeup flap, it's 61 millimeters. Uh, the, the authors then present some cases. The, this first case is a case of a failed breast implant-based reconstruction, and the patient uh, was then reconstructed with autologous uh, reconstruction. So, uh, as you can see in the preoperative, she had a very nice contour in the abdomen, and she didn't want to have her, her uh, scars in the abdomen so she was proposed to have these uh, flaps and actually she had a very nice reconstruction in terms of volume shape and symmetry with uh, bilateral flaps and also we can see that the silhouette was even improved in the post-operative period the second patient is a, a case of a 60 year old woman with large breasts and that she had pre previously undergone an abdominoplasty and so uh, she was actually planned to be reconstructed with stacked uh, septocutaneous gluteal artery perforator makeup flaps. 
but during the surgery it was uh, found that one flap was enough and actually we can see a very nice result in terms of shape uh, and volume too with no problems on the donor site. So, uh, as a discussion, uh, the gluteal region is an alternative donor site for autologous reconstruction when the DF flap is not eligible, uh, but some pitfalls have avoided this, the gluteal region to become more popular for autologous breast reconstruction. Uh, the challenging perforator dissection, the post-operative deformity in the gluteal region, and the difficult operative workflow because of operative position change during the procedure. Uh, in the present study, the authors present a new flap. The, the septocutaneous gluteal artery perforator make up a flap, and this flap overcomes uh, most of these pitfalls. Uh, it is more ventrally located, so it can be harvested with the patient in the supine position. Uh, it allows, uh, it smooths the workflow because you can have uh, a two or three team approach. Uh, and the dissection becomes easier because it's, it's aided by the gravity, the flap falls down and it, the, the, the dissection becomes easier. And also it has advantages in the, in the donor site. Uh, the resulting scar is easier to hide in, the, in clothes um, and, all, uh, and also it avoids the, the deformity in the gluteal region in terms of gluteal projection. Uh, the subcutaneous tissue of the septocutaneous gluteal artery perforator makeover flap is less stiff than other gluteal flaps, which better resembles the, the breast tissue. And besides, beveling the donor site of this flap will achieve different goals. Uh, it will achieve a better donor site contour, it will smooth the transition of the flap edges and volume to fill the breast upper pole. So, uh, in fact, the results achieved in patient number three that the authors present in their paper speaks for, for itself because uh, this was a patient that was reconstructed with a dip on the left breast and with, a, with this flap on the right. It really emphasizes the strengths of this donor site. As a conclusion, uh, the septocutaneous gluteal artery preferred makeup of flap is a reliable flap that provides enough volume and good aesthetic outcome for breast reconstruction. It overcomes the previous pitfalls of the gluteal flaps, namely the need for position change. And this way it can be seen as a second choice for autologous breast reconstruction and be part of an individualized uh, reconstructive plan for patients that had breast cancer. Thank you very much, Luis. That was a great summary of the paper. Um, really highlighting the main points very well there. And I think um, it leads on nicely to the discussion we're going to have. Um, so I'll hand over to Hine now, who'll just ask you a few questions um, about the methodology of the paper um, and about its appropriateness as a quick appraisal before we get on to the clinical applications. Thank you, Hine. Thank you. Yeah, well, it's my distinct honor to, uh, to interview you, Luis, on, on work of my, one of my closest uh, allies in, in uh, plastic surgery, the team of Maastricht. And I must say that Stefania Tinder and Renee Vanderhuls have done it again. They've been innovative, they've been new and, and refreshing. It's a thrill and a, and a joy to see what all the stuff you're doing and developing and there's something for the world to learn. And so Louis, thank you very much for your uh, clear presentation. And uh, the, we have a number of questions on the critical appraisal. One of them is, is there a clear uh, aim of the research Yes, I think the, the aim is clear, is uh, to describe a gluteal flap that can be used 
and can be harvested with the patient in supine position so the operative workflow can be improved and eliminate one step of the surgery always a boring step of changing the patient in the position yes. and a time consuming and dangerous step i would say yes so it's yes. A, a real clear and useful aim and what are your thoughts on the quality of the methodology and investigating this this question they have i think the methodology is just right so uh, Actually, it's based on, on their previous anatomical study of the, this territory. And then, and now it's applied to the clinical practice. And I have, I think the methodology is, is just right. Because yes. there, there were many levels. So that we have the MRA, we have the dissection uh, instruction, yes. and it's quite complete, I would agree. Yes. Um, what was the data collected in a way that addressed the research issue? Uh, yes, yes. It was the patients that were reconstructed with, with this flap. Uh, yes. And what, what do you think about the design of the whole study? So you've got a, an idea and you want to prove its efficiency. Do you, do you think they ticked all the boxes for you as a surgeon to learn from? Or is there any information uh, that you still would like to have? Yeah. So my main question uh, would be about the the subcutaneous projection uh, on the donor sites, the methodology for that study, because I think there's some bias on the selection of these patients since they underwent this flap because they had more subcutaneous tissue on this location. So uh, my question would be, can we generalize this finding, like this location, uh, we will find a big depth of subcutaneous tissue on the general population or maybe not, it's a very good question and actually in the first of all was like feeling that you have more tissue there as you see in the studies included a patient who was planned for a stat and it just went to be a unilateral and we are doing more studies about that and we analyzed even other data and Annie knows everything about that so I like to let her speak <laughs> I have a feeling and uh, she make everything on paper. Yes, and we are actually now uh, also analyzing the data of patients who have underwent various types of breast reconstruction, autologous breast reconstruction, and also measuring the subcutaneous projection on these different donor sites that, they, uh, that were used. Gluteal flaps and lateral thigh flaps, for example. And even in the data, needs to be written down and uh, it's not uh, anywhere to be read yet but so far the luteal region is always always bigger in every uh, patient population it's actually equally distributed through all these populations contrary to the lateral thigh for example so in the in the case because we all want to learn from the expert in the case where you planned and consented the patient for a bilateral or a stacked flap. In retrospect, if you, is there a lesson to be learned for, for the audience? Can, can we predict that prior to surgery using your technology or MRA or looking at projection or what are your tips and tricks on that level? It's difficult to say. As you see, it's a learning curve. You, you have to know every flap you, you are doing. I was quite surprised with this flap how, how much tissue I could harvest in one, one time, actually. 
we don't have already like uh, we can do something with uh, with a 3D uh, camera, but we, I I don't have yet like a very very predictable tool to predict if you can do that or not. But I think you have to to let also things open and to decide at that moment. Sometimes even the vascularization of, uh, of your flap, of the part of the flap well vascularized can have a, an impact on your decision. Well, well, theoretically, it's, of course, you have this people who make an estimation of the volume by putting markers and everything, but to, to my opinion, it, theoretically it's possible, but in, in practice, as Stefania says, sometimes the blood circulation is different and the uh, predictability and accuracy of that measurements in our hands, let's say, is still not that, that way that we can use that. So in, in, in our, in our uh, opinion, and I think we still use the like uh, carpenter's eye to, to, to make an estimation of that. Oh. That sounds very familiar. I really struggle myself as well. The predicting volumes of flaps, it's, it's really difficult and challenging sometimes. Somehow you, you, you get more confident with experience with a flap and you can predict it better if you are doing more flaps. So you know that somehow it's our brain even better than, <laughs> than yeah, all yes. the tools we have at this moment at least. Uh, but what, what we're trying to do is really the, the end result, to try to achieve the best result. So sometimes I just let open for the patient, if the patient agree, like one side or two sides, and at that moment you decide if. One of the problems with volume, but maybe uh, I, I think Horace did some studies on that, but one of the problems with volume measurements is that the tissue is, it's not stiff tissue like bone, but it's, it's flexible. So it's, it's, it's uh, next to the vascularization thing. Yes. Therefore, the variation in uh, definite volume remains, to, to my opinion, difficult. But yeah, we don't have, we don't use that. Like this, so, Stefania, you tell us why well, we leave something open for chance or open for experience per operative decisions. And you also say as experience grows, you get better at it. Well, that's a bit of a, a sour message for the people that are just finishing training because they have to wait for experience. Do you, do you have advice for the more junior consultants that are setting up a micro program, how they can get more of a, a basis on, on predicting? And because usually prediction gives you some courage during surgery. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that? I don't know if I look at my own experience and we will say something about that even later on i think if you start take it easy don't try to make it complicated you know at least for me the first years of my microsurgery uh, training was like i was very happy if i had a live flap that was the goal of the day <laughs> and, and I think you, you, you get more confident at the end and you, you, just, you just push your limit. And if you start with microsurgery, I had the great opportunity. I'm Italian. I had the great opportunity to work in the Netherlands. And I think that the, the team behind you is also very, very important. So it's, if you have a problem 
you need someone that can help you. <laughs> so take it easy and look for a nice team behind you. I think that's that's the most important uh, goal and speak very, very clear with your patient and even the expectation and so on. Just one thing about predictability. I think there are some developments, volume uh, estimation, but the most important thing I think in predictability is imaging, which, which has developed also over the years. Yeah. And I agree absolutely with Stefania with, with, her, with what she says, but in predictability, imaging is very important and that's actually the reasons why we are able to find new flaps and to see where, the, where this perforator is situated and what kind of flaps you can do. We don't do uh, this kind of flap if you don't see a perforator. No. Okay, so a few more questions for Louise. Was the data analysis sufficiently rigorous? Yeah, I think so. The, so the authors clearly showed the patient demographics. So all, I think all, everything that could confu confound the results are explained. I, I would maybe say or suggest that um, a more objective analysis of the results in terms of patient satisfaction of the reconstruction and of the donor site could be done. But I, I understand this is a, a primary study, so maybe a longer series will probably have that and will will really show the, the potential of this lab. Yes. And is this research actually valuable for the, for the practice of microsurgeons in breast reconstruction, autologous breast reconstruction? What are your thoughts on how valuable the results are? Everyone uses the DIP, and when you ask 10 people what's the second best flap for breast, you will probably find 10 different answers. And now you will find 11 with this flap, or maybe you will find more people uh, saying this is a better flap, a second choice for, for less breast reconstruction. It's very valuable, I think. I think that's a, that's a really good point that we can take into the, to the discussion with, with the group is what is the, the second option and how does this flap position it in the armamentary of the, of the microsurgeon. And I think, um, I think this is sort of rounding up the, the critical appraisal of Dimitris, if I'll go back to you. Yes, thank you so much. That's a great discussion already. Um, I'd just like to take this opportunity to introduce Professor Edward Chang, who's joined us um, from Houston, Texas. Thanks so much for joining us, Ed. We really appreciate your time. I know you've had a busy clinic there, and, and we'd love to hear your thoughts as well on the paper. Uh, thank you again for having me. I apologize uh, for being a little bit late, uh, but I thought the paper was actually really nicely written, and actually there's a lot of data that was included in the paper um, it wasn't simply just an anatomic study. It wasn't simply just a technique paper, but there was also evaluation, as we had talked about, for the subcutaneous thickness and the projection of the tissue. Um, I think it is really valuable to think about alternative options for breast reconstruction. It is something that is really a critical aspect of plastic surgery and the field of plastic surgery. Um, at least in the United States, we've lost much of the head and neck reconstruction. We have orthopedic surgeons doing lower extremity salvage. Um, urologists want to do gender affirmation. So breast reconstruction is still really very much the heart of plastic surgery. And we're sort of responsible for trying to provide the best outcomes and options for patients. Uh, I don't know that necessarily one is better than the other, but uh, like the authors, when you can kind of innovate and come up with a new flap, 
and you build experience with it, you have that in your armamentarium that you can use it for patients who are not candidates for maybe your first choice or your second choice. You know, we see this very commonly with head and neck reconstruction. Heine uh, and I, you know, we had that uh, previous um, webinar on, you know, head and neck reconstruction and, you know, breast reconstruction should have a armamentarium of available flaps that people can use to give patients the option for autologous reconstruction when the abdominal donor site isn't usable. So I think uh, it's a very nicely done paper. And I think it, um, it speaks to the heart of plastic surgery where we oftentimes are the ones innovating and pushing the field forward and other services and specialties like to kind of offer these options. But um, I think, um, you know, this is really important for, uh, for patients and for the field of plastic surgery. Thank you very much, Professor Chang. I couldn't agree more. It's, um, it's a great paper and we're learning a lot already. Um, I'd like to pass over to Horatio now. The questions um, both to Professor Chang and to the authors um, and with your thoughts as well, Horatio. Well, uh, first of all, I, I would like to, to thank uh, all the team, uh, Rene, Stefania and Eni for choosing our journal as an outlet of their wonderful work. Uh, we receive a wonderful contribution for Maastricht on a regular basis, and uh, they are always amongst the top downloaded articles from our journal. So first of all, congratulations and thanks. Uh, I have a couple of questions for the authors. First, uh, I just say the, 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 the aim of the paper was to present um, an alternative way to harvesting the flap without changing the position of the patient. Um, I would like to know if they did some calculation there in, th in terms of time, how much time you save uh, without changing the position of the patient. And also, if it is translated the, from the economic point of view, I mean, you are reducing your surgical time, how much money you are saving for your medical center? Well, we didn't we didn't do actually a cost effectiveness uh, study yet. I think that the number is too small for that. But you can you could theoretically do that. Um, but I would like to. I don't know if, if any can say something about uh, changing time. But it's not for me. What I would like to say is that it's not only changing time. But normally we operate in two teams. So the one team is preparing the mammary vein and and. And that's some, so it's not only the time to turn, but also the advantage of working in two teams. So I think it would, would save at least one and a half, two hours maybe, because everybody's going to take a break when the patient's going to be changed, the nurses are going to have coffee and everything, and it's very difficult uh, to, to change that. And then the question is, what does it really cost uh, save money? It's a very difficult one. But if we, we can make that on an economical basis, but in practice, it doesn't work that way because if we are finishing one hour earlier, we cannot do another patient. I also don't think that it's you can compare it, for example, to the DF flap because there's so much experience now in harvesting the DF flap, and this is still uh, in the first series of patients, so there is also a learning curve in harvesting this flap still. Yeah, yeah. But you could compare it to the standard, uh, and, but then you yeah. have to you would have to compare it to a historical group, or you should randomize, and we think that's. And we were doing now this fab, so we're not going to do change anymore. So, so it's difficult to do this kind of work. I think uh, or I should bubble in bilateral cases is an advantage mm -hmm. because when we were doing, it was 
a couple of years ago, but usually we were two teams, two staff members doing uh, the dissection and then turning the patient to be faster for the ischemia time and so on. And now with this new approach, uh, we need just one staff member. So okay. for us, it's like not really like economically, we, we don't see yet that, but it, we don't need two staff members, but just one for bilateral cases. That is uh, like a, a win. Uh, yeah, of, course, of course it saves money if you calculate, you can, if you do the cost, the cost uh, analysis, you will, you will see that it costs, yes. that saves money, but because it saves time. As Luis said before, now you have a, another very good second option for breast reconstruction. And if you can add an economic, an economic point to this new flap, you know, it's another reason to convince yeah. people to, to do this flap, you know? That, that was, I, I was asking that. You are right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, and I have a, one last question. For those unilateral cases, because I noticed that there was some change in the hip contour. And in some cases, when dealing with young patients, you, you happen to receive the request to uh, improving the contouring, the contralateral side to achieve uh, symmetry, for instance, by using liposuction, for instance? Yes. Is that a yes. common request? Uh, even with DIP flap, usually we have a second uh, touch with our patient, at least most of them. And of course, uh, that's completely right. The results presented are just cases where that are planned now for the second step. And of course, in unilateral uh, cases, usually you have to do liposuction on, uh, on the other side. Yes, absolutely. You are creating an, an, an asymmetry, and uh, so you have to solve it. So uh, the, the, the ladies always ask for the correction, I mean. I like a good result. <laughs> so Wonderful. I, Sometimes you find that the numbers are not huge, so I cannot speak in percentage. And sometimes are happy, but if you wait enough, six, nine months, one year, then usually they, they come back and they say, well, but you said that it was possible to do this or that. Yes, I think that you can, and even we, we, we say that before, usually a two-step procedure. But Actually, even in my DIP cases, the most of the patients, not everyone, but a lot of patients have a second, a second step. Perfect. Thank you very much. Um, I'd just like to bring in Graham to ask a couple of questions and share his thoughts um, to both the authors and Professor Chang as well. Uh, thank you very much. Phenomenal work, uh, authors. Really excellent. Well done. And you'll have inspired a lot of people out in the audience who are thinking to themselves, wow, we'd better get in and do something like this. So I'd like to ask Professor Ed Chang, who works at an internationally renowned uh, institution, to give us his perspective on risk management when introducing a new flap uh, as a young surgeon. I guess from the surgeon perspective, it's always... Um, a little bit risky because you are sort of under the scrutiny. Um, obviously, the primary concern is to care of the patient, but you're sort of under the scrutiny of a lot of other um, 
people both within the department and outside the department. Um, for example, you know, while the medial artery perforator flap has been pretty well described and sort of performed widely across the country by very experienced people, I did the first one at MD Anderson for a gentleman who had had um, an injury to his brachial plexus from elective surgery on his non-dominant arm. His dominant arm, he refused to let us use his uh, forearm. So we sort of went through other donor sites. And again, while this, this paper is very valuable because it describes alternative donor sites, we sort of had to go to secondary options. I'd never done a medial sural flap. Um, everybody in the department said, why don't you just take it from his dominant arm? The patient again was very hesitant to do it so um, you're sort of under the scrutiny of people within the department asking you to do you know the standard approach the referring head and neck surgeons had never seen this flap were also curious as to what this was that was going on the fellows as it turns out the most fearless the trainees really have no fear they want to try to do everything they're very eager to try something new and innovative um, and see something, even if it fails, they're super excited. Um, but um, I think, uh, you know, a new flap like this, um, it's very innovative. And again, I think, uh, you know, to everyone's experience on the uh, on this journal club, I think with the preoperative imaging, with sort of the concepts of perforator flaps, perforator anatomy, and the experience from other flap elevation, um, it really lends uh, the field to be sort of propelled forward um, but I think in introducing a new flap, um, you sort of want to hedge your bets to your success. Read, talk to you know other people who have the experience. Um, you know, look online for YouTube videos. You know, I went to the Bunky website. I spoke to some colleagues who had done the medial sural flap uh, and tried again to maximize the uh, the success rate of uh, introducing a new flap. Um, I'm not gifted and talented like Mr. Perk, so I sort of need all the help I can get. <laughs> but I think uh, a lot of the, the people on the, you kind of trust your instincts and, you know, you have great colleagues and great resources. And I think Icoplast sort of brings people together from all over the world. And um, I feel very fortunate to have known Mr. Perks, uh, Horacio, and everybody, you know, any for kind of bringing us all together so that we can collaborate. So I think these are all things that uh, are very helpful when you're trying to do something new and innovative. Thanks, Ed. That's great. Can I ask Stefania, uh, you've done all the cases yourself. At what point do you start to let your colleagues participate and take some of the responsibility and particularly, as Ed says, those enthusiastic fellows and trainees who are just itching to be doing the surgery. Will you share your experience, please? Yes, of course, but I think it's uh, not a flap for uh, a beginner. Uh, and I think that it's really important. My colleagues can just, I think they, they can do that. But I think that it's important to run all the steps. I think it's, there are anyway technically some points why not everyone want to do that, I think. But yeah, the residents, we are one staff member and one resident for every micro case. So they see a lot, they learn a lot. But I think it's a learning curve. So it's not 
have lab at least I think for a resident. They are able to do a DIP flap, uh, but I think they have to build up a little bit experience to do other flaps. That's really good. Thanks very much. Graham, if I may comment, that's because that's an interesting thing. And I've, I've finished training uh, maybe 10 years ago and I really also struggled. And you see two groups of people, the one that finished training and stick to what they can do. And there's groups of people that like to innovate, such as Stefani and Ed. I personally try to do a new flap every year that I have no experience on, and I share it with my patients that have never done it before. But I do have the skills and hands to do these flaps, and I, I typically get consent. Moves on very nicely to hearing, uh, perhaps from any first, about the patient experience. Um, I know you have a recorded message that Professor Rene has ready to go and we'd be great to hear from that before and then on to your presentation about the, the history and the story of this flap as well. Hello, my name is Els and I'm 37 years old. I had my breast reconstruction the 29th of October 2019. After consultation with Dr. Tanya, I decided to go for this reconstruction because this reconstruction would suit my body best in a way that I would also keep my family shape. The scars on my hip are about 22 centimeters long, and the one on my left hip is slightly lower than the one on my right hip, but I don't find that disturbing. If I want, I can hide most of my scars if I wear the right underwear. If I wear a bikini, you can see the scars on my hip, but I don't mind. I'd rather have these scars than a big scar on my stomach that immediately catches my eye when I look in the mirror. With most of the clothes I wear, you can't see I've had this reconstruction. I don't put on the very tight dresses yet, because then you can clearly see that there are dents in the area of the scars. But I am confident that the correction surgery will improve that. I am now on the waiting list. My breasts feel very natural, and I also love the shape. As far as I know, I am the first patient to have a nerve placed in each breast during this reconstruction and there seems to be some feeling coming back into the donated skin. I'm really curious how that will develop in the future. I do not experience any obstacles in terms of movement, not even during fitness. I do cardio and weight training. I'm very happy with that. And without any doubt, I would recommend this reconstruction to other patients. I'm very happy that I could choose this reconstruction, and even now, after the whole recovery process, I will make the same choice again. Lovely, that was great. Thank you very much. Um, I'd just like to ask perhaps Professor Chang, do you use the superior gluteal artery perforator flap in your practice for um, any indication of breast reconstruction? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I mean, I think it was something that was addressed very well in the paper. The SCAP was actually probably our second uh, choice flap. With the introduction of the PAP flap, we sort of gone more to the PAP as our secondary choice. And some of the reasons were that we didn't have the position change, very reliable anatomy, uh, relatively straightforward ease of harvest, which were all the critical advantages of the, you know, the new subcutaneous makeover SCAP. So I think it's a very attractive, very appealing option. Um, again, now seeing that the harvest can be done supine without a position change and with very reliable anatomy, um, I mean, I think this is a very interesting option for a secondary uh, donor site. Great. I think that's 
That's really great. Uh, maybe we'll see a series coming out of MD Anderson in the coming years as well. With that, I think I'll pass back to Stefania and Renee just to hear about your story behind this flap. Um, and I know it's an interesting story, so we're very much looking forward to this. We thought that perhaps was interesting uh, for residents. Your your question was uh, very important, I think, because how, how can you come to something new, how ideas come up and... Uh, I think it's an interesting aspect, what, uh, what is behind the results and behind the story. And uh, so that's why uh, we try to put something uh, together, uh, thinking and uh, where we started years ago. What, what happened actually? I, I moved from uh, Italy to the Netherlands in 2005. And uh, I really would like to do some research. And so I came to the department, was at that time a very little department. And they said to me, well, you can do a study on perforator on the gluteal region. All right. But uh, we, we spoke with the anatomy department. We had no funding, no PhD student, no statistician, no medical illustrator. We had only me and my time, and we had only cadavers under formalin, where the, the tissues is quite stiff and not very pliable. And I started to try to isolate little blood vessels all around in the gluteal region. And I was like uh, desperados. In the gluteal region, there are lots of perforators. And I had to find a way to map them, and I thought it was impossible. But at a certain point, we saw that at the edge of the gluteus maximus, at the edge between the gluteus maximus and gluteus medius, were very nice perforators, much more easier to, to follow. And so we tried to isolate those perforators and it was the case. So I spoke with, uh, with Rene because at that time, 2005, 2006, I was not able to do S-GAP by myself. Uh, I was starting with doing the IP flap. So it was like a, a step too big for me. Uh, Rene said, well, yeah, that's true. They are nice. He, he had a look at, uh, at my dissection and he said, well, yeah, it's nice. Then we presented our anatomical study and a WSRM and Bob Allen was even enthusiastic about that. He said, well, they could be nice. So someone had to do the, the, the first patient. Uh, we did some analysis with a color Doppler to see those perforators and they were very often there, nearly always. And the location was a little bit higher than in standard SGAP. So we had the first patient. And how can you recruit the first patient? That's, that's the point. And you are doing something a little bit different than standard. And what are you doing? So I, I started, uh, I had the first uh, meeting with the patient. And I said, well, we want to try this. And uh, the, the talk was in Dutch, and my Dutch at that time, it's, it's now even not perfect, but in 2006 was, was very bad. So I had to speak about a new procedure with this patient saying, well, it's the first time. Eh? And at a certain point, the patient stopped me and he said, well, you are not Dutch. And I thought, 
oh my god so it's it's end uh, of a story she will never agree to do the operation is everything explained from someone not speaking speaking perfectly dutch and saying that it's the first time so it's it's finished but things were uh, went different because the patient said and it's really true you come from abroad you are a stranger you will operate it with someone here that's perfect i agree because my fortune teller said to me that someone from abroad will help me so just let's do it so <laughs> So we recruit the first patient at that time. And of course, I, I couldn't do it by myself. So I had to have a, a team behind me. And at that time, so Professor van der Hulst agreed to help. And actually, he did the, the first as septocutaneous gap. And we had a beautiful perforator, as you see in the picture. And the result was not perfect, as you see. We did a, a big reduction on the other side, perhaps that uh, nowadays we will do a stacked uh, S-gap. But as I told before, if you start, it's, it's difficult to do immediately everything perfect and a beautiful result. So she, she really uh, decreased her size, her breast size. And of course, we learned from that and we did other cases and everything went better. But uh, the most of the cases were operated by two teams. So we did uh, me and Renee together usually to be faster, above all in bilateral uh, cases. And uh, we, we used that for, for quite uh, a long time, a second choice. Actually, after that, we introduced the, the lateral type perforator flap, the shaft flap, the TMG, if, if I have to be honest, at this moment, we don't have really a second choice, but we really try to do a tailor-made work for our patients. So I think it's important to have all the tools in your hands and then every patient is different. And sometimes you have patients with different ideas than you. So what, what we, we have learned in, during the years is that you really have to listen to your patients and to understand what they want, what they find acceptable, and uh, what kind of results they, they want to achieve. And you really have to try to, uh, to help them in that way. So even the SGAP makeover is uh, one of the tools in our armamentarium, but it's not the only one. Not every patient is suitable for, for the flat. Uh, at a certain point, a patient came for autologous breast reconstruction and she really didn't want a scar on her abdomen. She was coming from another uh, land. For her, it was really important to uh, not to have a scar on the abdomen. And she suggested, actually, to use the flank. And uh, we usually do MRA pre-op and we saw a nice branch running at the edge of the anterior superior iliac spine. It's a branch uh, running very close to the bone. It's very difficult perforator to dissect, I, I can say to you, because uh, we, we did, I think the first case is we used this branch. This branch is giving a lot of, this perforator is giving a lot of 
uh, little branches to the bone. You cannot spread around the perforator because you have the bone at one side and it's really difficult. In the second patient, I uh, tried uh, to use again this, this branch, but it was even more difficult. So what to do? I just went behind in two-pine position, and at a certain point, I found a new perforator. I opened up, and I recognized that I was in the septum between the gluteus medius and maximus, which was something I was used. I knew very well because I did a lot of dissection, and we did a SCGAP. So that's the way we, we, we did actually the first patient in supine position using this branch. So I even didn't imagine before that you could isolate and dissect these branches in supine position. But I realized at that moment that it was even easier because I didn't have to peel up the gluteus maximus, but I was just looking just at my perforator and it was much more easier. Above all, because the veins there are very fragile and I could see the branches coming from the vein and going to the gluteus maximus and medius uh, more clearly and the dissection was easy. So we did some cases and it was reproducible. And so it's, uh, it is born the idea of this makeover of actually a flap that already exists. Of course, uh, you have a scar that can be hidden but most of the time you have to plan a revision for the scars uh, or for little details in the breast. So that's the story behind. Yes, that was amazing. Thank you, Dr. Twinza. It's a great example of making the most of opportunities to innovate, as Professor Chang was saying earlier, but also just thinking laterally and finding new solutions to problems and making your life easier and then better outcomes for the patients, as you say. So that's... That's a great story. Thank you so much. I think it leads on nicely from what Graham was talking about before about um, teaching trainees. And um, this is a, almost an inspiration to trainees to try and think laterally themselves and develop new ideas as they see their, um, their bosses doing certain techniques and putting things together um, to innovate for the future. So this is absolutely amazing. Thank you so much. With that, we've, we've had a great discussion of the paper and we've really taken it to the next level there. Um, I'd like to invite the panel to have any further questions after that presentation, um, to think from your own experience. So you may have had similar experiences with challenging cases and um, thinking outside the box to, to adapt and how this can be brought into more mainstream practice as well, perhaps. Autologous breast reconstruction is a really, really perfect way to, to enhance your skills, to take you through your decision algorithms and to get some also some uh, security about your own quality because it gives you numbers on flap loss and how you actually perform. Uh, it's really important also to have this basis to expand your applications. So if you want to take on diabetic feet, press reconstruction is a really, really great base to build on and as well for head and neck. And, and on top of that, this dynamic that you can introduce into your own practice in such a safe manner, if you do it properly, using your networks, calling up people, just like Ed was saying before, this is going to help our patients tremendously because back in the days when people had complex lower limbs, 
uh, that would stay in hospital for weeks and weeks and then have their leg amputated in three years time anyway, we can prevent that by using these techniques. You know, when you're good at doing DFs, why wouldn't you do a DF flap to a lower limb? And uh, I think that's, that's really valuable in our breast reconstructive practices, the numbers and the experience that we can gain from it. And, and within breast reconstruction, I've learned a lot from Stefania and, and Renee as well, the LTP flaps and all the other flaps. So I, I try to do them as much as I can, but so far I, I come up with uh, solutions with the DF flap uh, quite nicely, but it's very valuable to have your amamentary. It makes you more flexible. Like Stefania says, that's the ultimate uh, level of your microsurgical practice where you can just tailor your solution to a random patient's looking at scans, looking at vet, fat depositions and fat distribution, you, you'll just say, well, this, your body just fits this flap the best. And you can say that with confidence because you know how good your results are. And that, that's, it's a really big push to push yourself, as Stefani also says, to go for the next level. And, and that's your, your, point as well, Stefania and, and the Maastricht group has been showing that for years and years, and we shall all learn from them. And I asked you if you have a, a fellowship in Maastricht that people could be interested in. Is that something that you guys have? We are working on that. And we, we have a fellow, started the fellow now, but it's working for, uh, for one year, and uh, a paid fellow. Uh, we have one paid fellowship. We have some regulations uh, around speaking Dutch language, and we are busy with that to solve that because we think it's not possible for just a few months or a year to speak Dutch. But if there are people interested, just send us a mail, and yeah. we're trying to do what we can do. Everyone is welcome. So, 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 Renee, you're saying with an Italian staff member and somebody from China who trained in Spain and Taiwan. That language is a big issue when you try to work in Maastricht. So that message to the audience is that's a clear yes. It's a paid fellowship for a year. You can apply. Just send an email to Renee or Stefania. Thank you. We all need to learn from you guys. You should open your doors. Thanks. I think you'll be getting a few emails after this. I think we've covered a lot of ground here. We've had a great discussion. It's been such an interesting paper. And I think um, we should all be trying to add this to our armamentarium, as we say. Um, I think we'll close. I'll hand over to Horatio to um, just say from the journal's point of view, um, what is it that made this paper stand out and the papers that you received from Maastricht University, just to give some guidance, perhaps the trainees, um, for how they should approach their practice and in building their research as well to be submitting to EJPS. All kind of papers are welcome, but we, of course, we are a surgical journal. We, we prefer uh, articles about uh, surgical techniques and also about new techniques or improvements in techniques like the, the one that has been discussed today. And also experimental uh, studies are welcome. You know, you know the, the, uh, the trainees, many times they are involved in research. So uh, experimental studies are most welcome. And also uh, reviews. Reviews are very are, are very welcome because you know that kind of papers used to render a lot of citations. Those three type of articles are the preferred ones. And I think maybe just the last question from me for any 
Um, I know you're doing a lot of research there in the department in Maastricht. Um, and what's your experience essentially of um, the research that you're doing? And um, how, how would you recommend that other trainees get involved in similar levels of research? Um, and what's your top tips essentially? Okay, yeah, well, actually, I uh, uh, didn't study here in Maastricht as well. I came from the uh, University of Leiden and I uh, wanted to do my last research internship in a hospital that uh, is experienced in what I was interested in, and that is autologous press reconstruction. And I ended up here. Uh, and I was fortunate enough to, I uh, explicitly chose my research internship at the end of my study, so I could hopefully do a PhD afterwards. And for me, that worked out. I'm very lucky to uh, have Dr. Turner as my supervisor. She is uh, very inspiring and helpful for me. And uh, a bigger guidance uh, uh, with her new ideas. And uh, yeah, I think just if you want uh, to do research, say it to anyone who will listen to you. <laughs> and hopefully someone will give you a chance. You just have to find someone who believes in you. Lovely. Thank you so much. A very inspiring message there. Um, I think we've really learned a lot from this new technique, and I think a lot of people will be taking this forward. Um, does anyone else in the panel have any other comments before we close the journal club? I was thinking about the, you know, after listening the, the comments of that um, very happy patient, Estefania's very happy patient, um, were you thinking, uh, are you thinking about conducting a study using a rescue, for instance? It's, it's coming, it's coming. This is just a, <laughs> a preliminary uh, idea, a preliminary article. Correction has to be done, uh, rescue, body cue, everything has to be done, of course. Yes. Ah, wonderful. Yeah. They are wonderful. In, our, uh, in our plan, of course. Lovely. We look forward to that. Thank you very much. And thank you in particular um, to our panel. Uh, Professor Ed Chang had to, had to leave back to work, but thank you very much to Professor Chang for joining us. Um, and I'd just also like to thank the whole of our panel. So thank you especially to Dr. Luis Vieira for your great appraisal of the article. Thank you. Thank you again, as always, to uh, Dr. Hine Rakost. It's been a pleasure. Well, I love doing this. And thank you, as always, as well, to Mr. Graham Perks. Privilege. Thank you very much. And thank you as well to Dr. Horatio Mayer. Thank you very much, Dimi. And thank you again to Dr. Annie Bitchkirk. Thank you. And especially to Dr. Stefania Tuinda. Thank you to you and everyone is welcome. We are open to every kind of collaboration and thank you. Thank you so much, especially to Professor René van der Hulst. Thank you. <laughs> Lovely. Thank you so much, everyone. That was a great discussion and a great paper. Um, and it's been a great episode of the JPS Journal Club, so we really appreciate your time for being part of this, so thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this month's European Journal of Plastic Surgery Journal Club. Please send us your thoughts about the article on social media using the hashtag EJPS Journal Club. Thank you again, and see you in two months for our next episode.